I went onto your Twitter to see, you know, what you else. You mean his ex, actually. Oh, yeah, sorry. sorry. Your, your ex yeah. Ex. yeah. So that's crazy. I, I couldn't find the actual app on my phone today. And I'm like, <laughs> what happened to Twitter? And then I just saw a giant X. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Elon. Yeah. That's what it did. Yeah, my gong show. Yeah. Well, I went yeah. on there to see if you had like any new research out that you had tweeted about or anything. And I saw all these balloons pop up because I guess it's your birthday. <laughs> happy birthday happy birthday oh my god what are you doing recording a podcast it is my birthday yes happy birthday thank you so much thank you so much yeah i'm actually in paris right now um but i'm gonna go back yeah but i'm gonna go back to holland uh probably tomorrow maybe friday if i can find a good party tomorrow oh yeah all depends on if you can wake up for that flight right true true You're listening to the Tripsitter Podcast, where we demystify substances, break down the science behind them, and discuss the crazy world of psychedelic culture. Like having a Tripsitter watch over your experience? Our goal is to provide guidance and support in preparation for your psychedelic journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the trip. Hey, I'm James, and uh, I'm a writer and contributor for Tripsitter. I'm Rowan. I'm a writer and contributor for Tripsitter. I'm Justin. I'm the founder, editor-in-chief of Tripsitter. Hey, and I'm Zeus Abado. I'm a researcher out of Holland, Maastricht, to be very precise. And I'm focusing on DMT, the brain, and VR, or XR, if you want to call it that. <laughs> so fucking cool. It's amazing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think you're like one of the only people I know of that's studying something for the sake of knowing it and not for the sake of commodifying it. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure, man. That Yeah, I, I found that I am probably one of only maybe two other people, maybe three other people on this planet that are researching psychedelics, not really for the, you know, therapeutic aspects, which is fantastic, by the way. It's good that these substances have great beneficial properties, but I'm just researching on pure perception. I'm just trying to fully understand why we even trip at all. And we don't really have a convincing explanation as to like why that is. Do you have any like preliminary theories just like a big hook to get people into it do you have any like <laughs> ideas yeah so there are about three existing theories that are out right now um i'll just briefly go over the three there's ramakar and harris rebus theory which is based on when you do psychedelics there's a sort of hierarchy of information that is processed and when you do psychedelics that hierarchy sort of gets blended up like info goes to different areas of the brain that it shouldn't go uh that's you know that's a pretty cool one uh, and then there's the uh, cstc which is by cashin Kreuler and franz bold by from University of Zurich. That's an idea where the thalamus is basically, it's sort of having a problem processing information. So it sort of glitches and like, you know, sort of essentially gives us information that's like uninhibited and inhibited at the same time, if that makes any sense. And it goes to the um, cortical. It's, it's a very long theory. I'm not going to get into it. And then there's the CCC, dose from Johns Hopkins University. That's sort of the same thing as the CSTC. It actually introduces the air area of the brain called the claustrum, which is, which is, you know, pretty, you know, dope area. So three pretty good theories, but I am incorporating a, I guess you can call it a fourth theory, but this theory essentially adds on to all of those theories. So it's just like a piece of something that all of those theories kind of forgot. And that's what I'm going to be dropping uh, relatively soon, whenever the paper 
it gets published. That's Do you have so like cool. a, an ETA for when that might be? Yeah. So uh, it, first off, it's a big, it's a huge paper, man. It's like 44 pages. It's just ridiculous. It's amazing. <laughs> but it's pretty wild. Yeah. I, uh, so I, we just submitted it this week and uh, it's a pretty fast submission. So it's August right now, August 2nd. And then, uh, prop, so I'm estimating probably at best late September, but probably like October time is when that theory is going to hit the scene. And I can't wait for people to like peep it. The science behind it is so vast. Like I included so many sites. I think I, I think it was like 144 citations overall for the entire paper. Because I just wanted to ensure that, yes, I am introducing a bunch of things that haven't really been talked about or discussed. But whenever you do that, you have to really back up what you say with fact. So there's like 144 citations backing this theory. And I can't wait for everyone to see it. Hopefully September or October. His fingers this, crossed. Is this like your first crossed. major paper on the topic since you started studying VR and DMT? Yeah, I would say it's it's my biggest for sure. I, I've written other papers in 2000. 21 i wrote a couple about vr and psychedelics but this is by far the biggest paper on psychedelics i've written aside from my master's thesis maybe and what was your master's thesis on? There's a process that I identified where, uh, so it's basically a basically look at tech, a look at psychedelics, and I find this very similar ways in which both of these substances or tech, if you want to call it that, communicate with us. And I incorporate a lot of, you know, psychology, neuroscience, social theory, McLuhan's in there, I even put McLuhan in there, Umberto Eco. So it's what? pretty, yeah, it's, it's a pretty wild thesis. I, I should probably like clean it up and just like re-release it to the public because I'll like give you a basic breakdown. What I was trying to achieve or establish was we have tech, obviously, and we have psychedelics. And let's say, for example, you're like watching a film. Uh, a film essentially produces an external hallucination. The huge bird isn't an actual bird. It's, you know, comprised of photons and that hit a certain screen in a certain angle, then that gives us the same sort of feeling of seeing something, of being startled. So that's essentially an external hallucination. Whereas a psychedelic has that same process, but it's completely internal. And then I go into that, you know, I'm tackled a bunch of other things and other topics and blend those two things together. So it was essentially a way to look at tech and psychedelics coexisting in the same realm, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a that's a really good jumping off point of my next question, which was how does studying the VR and DMT combination help us understand the psychedelic experience as a whole? Yeah, so VR and psychedelics is very interesting because people have very interesting opinions about VR. But if you combine those two, you can really peer into some very interesting insights on how the brain operates and how psychedelics could possibly operate and also of course how psychedelics operate inside vr so i mean i can't really say a lot because i would have showed you a demo of one of the vr things that we're working on from my laptop broke uh when i got paris so kind of uh, nixed that idea but um essentially i'm looking at a few things i'm looking at how the brain sort of works with VR by itself. And I'm looking at what parts of the brain are essentially um, activated whenever we do certain things in VR. And so really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to map out the brain based on how we perceive visual information inside VR. 
and I'm and I'm using functional infrared spectroscopy to map out the brain, which are like optodes that you attach to your head that uses the power of light to bounce off the blood in your brain. And based on how that light bounces off, we can tell if the blood has oxygen or if it doesn't have oxygen. Of course, you can see activity in the brain based on if blood has oxygen or if it doesn't have oxygen. And of course, your brain is always constantly shifting between blood that has oxygen, but that doesn't have oxygen. So by using this tech, I can see really the temporal pinpoint accuracy activity of your brain while you're inside VR. Of course, there are things happening inside VR that I really can't talk about. And how we incorporate the um, DMT within VR is also something that I can't talk about, but I've definitely given you a bit about, like, for example, like just the idea of, you know, I'm looking at brain activity and having a concise understanding of where the brain activity happens based on certain bits of visual information hasn't been done before in VR ever, just that by itself. So we're doing that and we have four really cool ways in which we're looking at visual information and we're actually seeing parts of the brain activate when the are looking at specific things, which is incredible. So that is what we're doing with VR. And then I, I can't really get into the DMT and the VR combination, but I can say that, um, yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> You're literally in the realm of sci-fi. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> You're working in this, like, it makes sense, though, because, like, VR, XR is such an immersive experience, and then psychedelics are also such an immersive experience, but one's external and one's internal, so it makes sense why they would mesh in this kind of way we literally as you were talking all of our mics were just going on and off we all just like we're like we have so many thoughts so many things to say <laughs> yeah no please fire any questions you have i'm definitely here to, to talk as much as possible yeah well i i love this because when i was writing the article that i had interviewed you for i came across a whole bunch of vr research that i felt like it was just like wild so much research out there that vr was capable of reducing pain and then there were like all these other things. But I, I was just like, it seems like there was a lot of interest in it for a while. And then it, it kind of just dropped off, like maybe around the time that VR became a, a viable consumer option, it seems. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if that's just my interpretation, but it seems like around the time that you could start buying like an Oculus, it seems like there wasn't a whole lot of research into it anymore i don't know is, is that how you feel too or am i misreading that well the oculus really changed the game uh so if you really um look at vr before what 2000 like 10 maybe like it's really dead and it's like stagnant vr really didn't develop from like the um, late um, 80s to like 2010 it's really been the same thing so the um oculus really opened the entire boundaries for vr research and the tech that was incorporated inside the Oculus Rift expanded out to other VR headsets. And that's the reason why we have things like Oculus, the HTC Vive, all, all these other headsets. It's because of the actual Oculus Rift. And the uh, Oculus Rift was actually designed or created by this guy, Lucky Palmer. He was 19 years old and he built it in his garage in San Diego. And then what? And he, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's it's and then he sold his company to Facebook for a billion dollars. I'm not sure how old he was. He was like in his like early 20s, walking around with a billion dollars but he really built the Oculus Rift by himself. Like you could even go back in time and you could look at like board posts that he had talking about 
as he's building and what he should do, what he's doing it. And people are like, you know, helping him out, talking to him, but he built the entire thing. So props to that guy. But when it comes to actual research, I would say that maybe the research, there was a surge of research when the um, Oculus happened, for sure, 100%. But I think what has happened recently is that this surge of research into VR has been replaced with, okay, how can this be utilized for therapy now? You know, and that's where the commercial aspects are um, coming from. You have companies like Onosis Tech, which is run by Prash and which is a fantastic friend, but he's looking at how VR can help with um, overall therapy, you know? And there's there's a lot of evidence. And see, that's the thing. It's so wild that I'm the first person to look at perception with VR and psychedelics. Honestly, it's so wild that I'm the first person because if you look at what, not even psychedelics, but there's this thing. Uh, should I say it? Uh, okay, it. I'm gonna Do say it. it. Uh, you can yeah, always cut it, it later so, if you need. Yeah. So okay. So so I have a, a paper coming out. I told you guys in like October, September. But I'm already writing my second paper, and this paper really dives deep into VR. Just like really dives deep. And and of course, as I'm diving deep inside VR, I'm I'm looking at like um centimeters that the screen has to be from your eye, the angle that it has to be. All, all of this stuff. You know, I'm looking at the the base components of VR, and then I stumble on this thing, which isn't actually with VR at, at all. It's called, and it's a very established idea called enriched environment. EE is what it's called, and you can actually search for this in a lot of scientific articles. Uh, lots, you know, published early 2000s, and then, and then that idea sort of like fell off. It didn't really. We didn't talk about this, but an enriched environment. So there is. I'll tell you the whole thing since I've already gone this far. <laughs> So in 2000, I believe eight or 10 or something around that time, there was a paper published where they wanted to look at this idea of enriched environment. And what is an, an enriched environment? Well, an enriched environment is, it's exactly what it actually sounds like. It's an environment that sort of is colorful it's it's friendly it's inviting it's peaceful it's tranquil and they they were looking at the power of enriched environments when it comes to rodents that had hippocampal surgery and when you have brain surgery there's a period of time where your brain has to like heal and that's just lesions in your brain healing and that's just you know process of you, you get cut on your arm you get a um, scab on your arm and you can't really accelerate that process you just wait for the thing that heal same thing with brains like you have to wait for lesions to heal but when lesions happen in the brain essentially the area where the lesion is it's like uninhibited so as opposed to people thinking that it like shuts off where you have lesions actually yeah, it's that the exact opposite. yeah and, and that is yeah you would think that it just you know um, shuts but it actually doesn't do that and often it actually it's uninhibited so it's almost like you take out this red light from the highway and the cars are just going to go 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 and that's what actually happens mostly when people have lesions on their you know brain anyways getting back to the enriched environment they found that the enriched environment of rodents that had hippocampal surgery if they were in an enriched environment post surgery they would recover faster and also they would have an sort of increase in like well-being 
And of course, you, you could test the well-being of rodents. There's a, it's a very established process. Like you could see if a rat is happy or not. You can but therapize it and sit it down and ask how it's doing. Yeah. You can like put it on a um, chair, you know, get your little uh, notebook out and hey, you know. But um, <laughs> but anyways, getting back, getting back to that. So why is this even important at all? So what they also found out is that just the enriched environment by itself, without psychedelics, without anything just the enriched environment by itself there we actually saw an, an increase in bdnf which is a signifier for brain cells regrowing and restructuralizing and rebuilding basically they found that uh, bnf was increased which shows that when these rodents are in a very enriched environment their brain is actually repairing and, and restructuralizing and rebuilding which is incredible because we're seeing a very clinical process happen without any pharmaceuticals at all. They're they're just in a very good environment. And of course, going back to psychedelics, setting is a very important thing inside psychedelics. And of course, we sort of passively say this idea of setting is, you know, you got to have a set and setting. That's just a very established, you know, concept and idea. But if you really want to go deep, what, what an actual setting is, it's actually an enriched environment. You know, you enrich the environment and based on the setting, the setting alone, potentially we could have in the same, not the same, but we could have similar sort of brain cell mechanics happen, specifically in the prefrontal cortex with psychedelics. So it's very similar. We're seeing very similar activities happening with just the enriched environment. So, so throwing VR in there, what is an enriched environment in VR? Okay, it's it's a nice, peaceful, tranquil place with the lake and everything. Okay, that's very interesting. But what really is an enriched environment? Like, can we actually map out brain activity that correlates with an enriched environment? We can, and that's what I'm doing right now. That's so awesome. It, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I feel like, too, a calming or an enriched environment for me probably is a, a different enriched environment for someone else. So is there like a level of kind of customization for each person that would come through or maybe like a few settings you could like, I'm trying to imagine how this would kind of go in, in something like therapy or something, how you would, how you would apply this, like have yeah. you anything like that, like differences in different people trying different enriched environments, anything like that? Yeah. So, and you're absolutely right. You know, every person has their own variation of their perfect setting essentially for like a sub it, it could be, you know, drenched in silk um, tapestry or something. Others, it's just like you're out in the forest or something. But 100%, it's very unique for some. But for all, there's very distinct things that apply essentially to everybody. So for example, there's this thing called white coat hypertension. What is that? So white coat hypertension is a thing that happens when a person is in a clinical setting. So let's say, for example, you're in for some research and you're looking and the researcher is looking for, oh, is this pill going to increase your heart rate? And this person gives the pill to the person and they keep on having increased heart rate. Even with placebo, they have increased heart rate. Now, what's happening? It's this idea of white coat hypertension in the sense that if a person goes into a, you know, clinical setting filled with white walls and all these very complex machines and people in white coats and very sterile environments, then perhaps their blood pressure is increasing because they have anxiety or perhaps they have a little bit of tension. So that's an idea of how setting can essentially be 
applied to all like i mean white coat application is a very distinct thing like that's the reason why even our um, psychedelic lab we're rebuilding things to reduce this sort of idea this like concept because we want people to experience psychedelics in a very calming environment perhaps not the best optimal environment for your liking but the best way to do it is to reduce all of the obvious bs so clinical white walls white coats you know weird machines everywhere white fluorescent lights that isn't a enriched environment for anybody so if we can just reduce the bad stuff then perhaps bringing the good uh, stuff would be a little bit easier what kind of good stuff have you been experimenting with so it's funny that you mentioned that because we're actually adding an entire floor to our uh, department so that we can actually give people psychedelics in very interesting settings, very relaxing uh, settings. So, so what is a good setting? Number one, reduce the idea of all these white walls that's out that's done, fluorescent lights out. We find that the lighting is very important too. You know, you don't really want to have a primary source of light that's just sort of beaming down. You want to have different sources of light, lamps. You want to have the person feel as quaint as possible, as safe as possible. So you don't go into the lab dressing in our, you know, um, lab coats. We tend to uh, wear very earth tone colors to sort of reduce the idea of a person that's a scientist looking at you now it's just a person with like a brown shirt or like a green shirt so there's a lot of things that we do to to firstly reduce the aspect of anxiety and tension for everybody that's the first part you know and then once we do that then we can enrich the environment or create the perfect setting you know comfy sofas Things have to be comfy. Temperature has to be good. Can't be too cold. Can't be too warm. These are very um, basic general concepts that apply to all. But, you know, if a person likes to do psychedelics in a forest, we necessarily can't recreate a forest for them. But actually we can with VR. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the most exciting things to me about the concept of, of pairing the two is the idea that you can basically always have your perfect environment in some way during some part of your trip at least i mean like if you're taking mushrooms you probably can't be in vr for eight hours like that would probably be a little long but but at some point even if it's just like on the come up during like the hardest part of it or when you're like peaking and you're like this would be the most you know fun time or whatever you can throw on your goggles and i saw i saw your uh your post with the ones that you guys are using they're just like a pair of bulky sunglasses it's crazy how small they're getting at this point and and you can just yeah. immediately be in the woods or floating through space or you know chatting with dmt entities or whatever you want to do yeah no we actually uh, incorporate the htc vive xr elite is what it's called and yeah it, it operates like you know you got a pair of glasses and you just drop them on your head of course this is a little bit bigger a little bit bug-eyed but yeah it's pretty impressive to see how small these devices are getting you almost want to say well how small can they get is is it going to be as simple as like a contact that you put on your eye? But then you're thinking to yourself, well, contacts suck. Like if VR were contacts, like I don't want to put contacts on my eye. So what, how small can VR get? Is it going to be like an implant? I mean, to be honest with you, that is probably the best idea is an implant. 
But I think the thing about the idea of implants and incorporating tech into a person's body via implants is that I believe that idea is is an, is a very um, old, antiquated idea already. It's an idea that's based in sci-fi, and I think the the real solution is a idea that we haven't discovered yet. But I don't think it's going to be an implant, and I don't think it's going to be a contact. It's going to be some something that isn't that. Well, yeah. if Neuralink Usually... has anything to say about it, then probably not implants, <laughs> right? We don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. I feel like that's a common theme with a lot of things is we tend to overcomplicate things and then we realize, no, the simplest way that we kind of, you know, started out with is usually the best way. Like, like in my opinion, a, a good VR glasses would probably be like some ski goggles or something, you know, like something that's not injected into my body that's comfy, cozy. It's not too clunky, too big. And we already kind of have stuff like that, don't we? Like um, with the nice like rubber bands on the side or something like that, something you could wear for several hours. I imagine that that would be much better than if you're saying, okay, we're going to implant something and then we'll we'll go through this experience. You know, it sounds Yeah, I, yeah, no, I, yeah. Anything when it comes to injection is sort of like sus, uh, at least in the perception of most people. But yeah, the thing about glasses is that if, if you just look at glasses, like the sort of um, history of glasses, glasses- Which all really, four of us are wearing. Yeah, glasses, they, they, they like really haven't evolved at all in the past, like what, 200 years? years 300 years like it's sort of been the same idea the same functionality you put this thing over here you have these two things and they help with your vision so it's hard to believe that vr would push the actual evolution of glasses it's just going to be like glasses that's all it's going to be is like glasses you know which is cool yeah i wonder if I feel like the best VR would be one that you don't have to wear, like a room that you sit in, like a it's like a hologram room, I guess, would be basically what it would be. But I think we're a long way from that. But I think that that would be like you could do that for an entire mushroom trip. <laughs> like the uh, the Ray Bradbury story where they're in the little room and then it's like a whole VR immersive experience and you're in this this room where you can feel everything but that then gets a little dystopian but i think that's probably the most immersive you can get with it yeah zeus have you tried making a hologram room yet uh so we have we actually uh we made this thing uh you're, you're, the, yes. first per you're the first you're the first podcast i'm ever gonna say this but i'll just reveal it so in our lab we have we Yes. So the answer is yes. It's called, we call it the base room. B-A-S-E room. Yes. Base room, the base room. And the base room is where we're testing a lot of theories and a, a lot of concepts that I'll be writing in my second paper. But um, uh, I can't tell you, can I tell you any of this stuff? I can't, I, I can tell you that the base room is a room that will, that I, that only I will be able to configure. And it's going to stay like that for years while we do research. That's What's the reason for that, for limiting the control of it? So the concept behind establishing a very set room is, uh, can I say, uh, okay, it's, it's too, okay, I'm just gonna say something and I'm not gonna explain it, but I'm gonna say it and then you just, and then we'll talk about it later. Uh, <laughs> all right all right all right shoot so this is a theory that i'm putting out in my second paper the theory that i'm and this is the reason why we have the base room i'm just gonna say the term cross reality information trans 
mission. Okay. I feel cool. like I or, can chew on for, that for, for a long time. Sure. This is like those stories of the uh, the Zen masters writing a phrase on the whiteboard and you got to meditate on it all day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cross-reality information transmission is a concept that, that I'm exploring in my second paper. So that actually kind of leads me. I have two really big questions. Uh, yes. One of them being more about like kind of the people in this study and how they're relating to things. The, fir the first one being, especially the fact that you're doing this in Holland and you were talking about medical anxiety before. For. Do you notice a difference between how people get immersed in it between like their in their different marginalizations like people have a lot of medical anxiety being from marginalized communities in America. So like doing this kind of experimentation on like the queer community or the black community or the indigenous community would be very different than doing it for like a cishet white man. Um, have you noticed differences in that in Holland that you're working in with the people that you're working with? Yeah, so, and you're you're absolutely correct. Any sort of um, clinical research when it comes to black community, LGBTQ, especially, but like definitely historically, farm, like the entire field of science is sus to say the very least when it comes to researching specifically there there's a few um, studies you could even search for it if, if, if you want to look for um i believe it's um syphilis in the black community there's a thing called bad blood which is they just essentially gave black people syphilis and they were like what happens so yes justifiably different communities should be suspect of science for sure especially in america because we because our track record is pretty pretty bad um, <laughs> but in comparison to the Netherlands, so the, first off, the um, Netherlands, it's like the most progressive place I've ever lived in my entire life. And I've lived in California for 10 years, you know, like it's, it's so progressive. So we're like one of the few places on the planet that could do consistent human research when it comes to giving people LSD, psychedelics, anything that you, you can imagine. So it's us, it's Zurich, and it's uh, Imperial College. So like England, well, not even all of England, maybe just like one part of England, Imperial College, London, Zurich, and us. The only three places I can do consistent human research. But the attitudes of research is very interesting. So here we have like everything. It's, it's we have, you know, obviously um, coffee shops everywhere where you can just go and buy cannabis and just like get high before you go to work. We have smart shops that are everywhere, which is where you could just buy shrooms just outright truffles and shrooms they're called smart shops you just go in and you buy whatever you want there's drug delivery services where you can get whatever you want delivered to your place 20 like with like within the course of like 24 hours we have the red light district we have which is you know prostitutions legalized we have assisted death therapy um so when it comes to the research that is done out here and of course all these countries that i that I'm definitely around Germany, um, Belgium. You gotta look at like historically, like a lot of great science happened out here. You know, um, I'm not sure if you guys seen Oppenheimer, the film, but even not like yet. Oppenheimer was like talking about, you know, this area, like Leiden was like an hour and a half from like where I'm at. Oh, that's, that's so, so the attitudes here are based strictly in science, strictly in, in like science. You, you don't have any sort of people walking around with like crystal balls and crystal healing and tarot cards trying to apply that to science and it's so good because it's based on so much objective fact that when any person tries to pass off some bs it gets squashed 
it gets squashed quickly, voraciously, and and beautifully. So that gives um, me so much hope. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it, it isn't. Yeah, listen, it, America's a wild country when it comes to believing in all of the pseudoscience and then applying that to like reality. And so yeah, there's there's so there's so much happening. You guys just search for the Netherlands. The science is amazing. Culture's amazing. That's all I gotta say. That's beautiful. My second big question ties us back yes. to kind of what we were talking about before about this like immersive experience about this the VR um as like someone who plays his uh plays a lot of games plays a lot of like TTRPG games there's this big idea of like narrative transport where you enter into this idea of the world and you are like in this world and the memories you experience in the narrative of a book or a game or a video game are the same as the memories you experience in real life with this research you're doing do you use narrative in any way or are you focusing primarily on like open world experiences Narrative is so important in the actual human experience. So it'd be ridiculous if I look at that and turn that away. So yes, I'm incorporating a narrative. I'm actually uh, I'm conducting research right now where I'm looking at people that have done DMT and I want them to tell us about their actual experience, but I want them to tell it to us in a very sort of beginning, peak, end way, which is a sort of incorporation of storytelling, I guess, when it comes to the DMT experience. So yeah, it's very, it's very important. It would be ridiculous if I look at how humans perceive their own reality and just deny that so it, it, it's beyond just showing people visual information i'm actually taking them on a constructed pathway that's based on what people are telling us about their own dmt experience hundreds of people across the planet that have been answering this fantastic survey and they've been telling us what they've been seeing inside of their dmt trips not only what they've been seeing but when the beginning the peak and the end which is incredible right there. So yes, narrative thumbs up on the narrative. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, I remember I saw uh, one paper that was like using VR to manage stress and they had like a stress-based game where it was like, you have to like control your breathing and lower your heart rate to unlock a gate and like stuff like that. And I, I remember reading that and being like, wow, that had, that would be a really powerful thing to incorporate into like the psychedelic come up experience, especially where it's like, as you're kind of like getting like body chills and like starting to like feel a little nauseous it's like guiding you to complete tasks uh take deep breaths mm. relax into yourself you know give you like a ball and tell you to let it go you know like things like that would be like i think just really powerful for that experience yeah i i love the idea of feedback and taking that feedback and doing something with it but i love the idea of almost gamifying the come up of a of an actual substance because the uh, come ups could be very intense for some like come Coming up on certain substances, it's almost like you have to sort of hold on to your seat and prepare for this giant whatever coming towards you. It's very intimidating for some. So I love the idea of gamifying this very anxiety-ridden process of coming up on psychedelics. Good idea. Okay, so you've got some some big research that you're going to be releasing. Like, I mean, I'm assuming around today, whenever this podcast gets released, not today when we record it. <laughs> um, what Don't can let you... them know how the song sausage gets made yeah. you gotta keep it a secret <laughs> <laughs> what what can you tell us about that what can you tell us about what you've been working on yeah so actually i kind of leaked it out uh earlier so we're taking vr we're taking fnirs uh which are two types of tech vr obviously you've heard of and fnirs is looking at brain activity with the aid of optos which are like little photon 
guns that are attached to the back of your head that shoot photons of near infrared light that bounces off the blood in your brain. Of course, after it has oxy, you can in deoxy, you can see how it flows. So right now we're trying to map out all possible visual information that can be seen with VR. And we're correlating this information with actual brain activity so that we could distinguish what a person is seeing based on very distinct footprints, if you want to call it that, in the visual cortex, which is the back of the head. So why do that? Well, I can't really tell you why, but I can tell you what we're doing. And that's what we're doing right now. Are you utilizing kind of the full spectrum of emotion as well? Like I worked for a VR uh, like arcade for a while and people who were playing like horror games genuinely got horrified and would like freak out and scream and then run away. And then they'd be attached to the VR and they'd like trip out. It would not be a great time for them. But like in this trip, you can have like really bad trips. Are you utilizing both like positive and negative emotions in these experiences or are you trying to guide towards exclusively positive yeah so fantastic question so actually with this research and with like really all the research that i've that i do with psychedelics is that i try to actually um expunge the idea of good or bad and i'm just focused on the objective visual things that are seen because the thing is is obviously psychedelics really operates in this very subjective realm which is filled with you know the idea of fear and and anxiety and happiness and that's all great but i think if we want to really have a distinct understanding of why we're tripping then we have to focus on what we're actually seeing completely removed of how what we see makes us feel that's really interesting so it's it's since you're not focused on the therapeutic element of psychedelics your focus is on the visual stimuli so it's it's not about placing value on the experience it's about what actually happens Yes. And how fantastic would it be, everybody watching this, if there existed an actual scale in which you can assess what you visually experience within each trip? Only what you've seen, not how what you've seen made you feel, but quantifiably what you see. What did you see and how that sort of places in the, you know, scale of zero to 100 and all that other stuff. Oh, that's really interesting because, yeah, I never thought about that, but all of the psychedelic scales are based on feeling like the oceanic boundlessness and like all these things are it's all based on how you feel and it's like whether you have uh oceanic boundlessness or like existential terror i can't remember what the other one's called but it's essentially the same thing in terms of like a pharmacological like standpoint it's just that your experience was different yeah like for example like in a feeling of oceanic boundlessness which is essentially ego um, dissolution for some could be very relaxing very calm but for others it could be terrifying absolutely so yeah, so it's 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 very to assume that when a person experiences something on the five BAS or the five DAS scale, which is the five dimensional alter states of consciousness scale, to assume that a person experiences something very intimate, like oceanic boundlessness, the same, I think is a little bit naive. But visually, a person will see a square how every person sees a square. Of course, you can say, like, oh well, you know, I see blue differently than other person. Okay, whatever. 
whatever, philosopher guy. Blue is blue, orange is orange, <laughs> square is square, you know? that That's sort of how uh, it's a very objective visual. It's visual information. It's actual info coming to our eyes. So, yeah. Yeah, it's still a shared reality, right? Like, I might see blue different than you see blue, but it's still blue to me, and it's still blue to you. It's the same same thing, right? Right. One, 100%. And, and, and I think if we went into an idea of if a person saw blue, but then you saw it as, like, red, then, then we have some type of collapse in the shared reality, you know? But ultimately, our shared reality is pretty consistent. And it's pretty consistent, obviously, on this planet. But even if you go off planets to, to you know, seeing the stars, like, the like reason why we can see, you know, the Alpha Centauri galaxies, because the rules on reality are essentially the same from um, here all the way billions light years away to the Alpha Centauri galaxy. So it's, it's a shared reality based on very elementary blueprints and rules that we all experience and that we all perceive. Okay, so going back to your, your research a little bit, I'm trying to make sense a little bit of this this idea of like measuring what you've seen or what the visual component is rather than how you how you feel. So is it like, this is how I imagine it's going. Tell me if, how, I'm, how far off I am. Like you'll show people kind of different images or environments and then you're using the, the detectors to basically identify where in the brain is lighting up in accordance to that. Is that correct? Um, <laughs> actually, uh, what you said is, is like relatively correct. So it's important for us to understand how visual information is correlated to brain activity. Right. And the reason why is because when we understand what objects, what environments, even what color increase or decrease certain areas of the brain and of course the activity, once we understand that, then we can have a better understanding of constructing this perfect setting or this perfect enriched environment that people can actually experience like Alexa. And also, here's the interesting part that I did. I completely left this out, but I'm going to tell you guys right now. So let's say I'm like, um, hey, so I want you to, and this is for everybody, everybody out here, I, I want you to pretend you have a blackboard or something and there's like a blue rectangle you're looking at the blue rectangle you like see it it's on the blackboard you've, you've seen a blue rectangle boom it's right there right and then and, and then if, if that happens and if we have the optos set up to the back of your head we could see oh he's looking at a blue rectangle or whatever or you know relatively close to what the person's looking at but then what if i'm like okay now i want you to imagine a blue rectangle without any visual stimuli just imagine there's a blue rectangle in front of you and if you're doing this right now, and if and if we had optos attached to your visual cortex, the activity of you imagining an actual blue rectangle is very similar to the actual activity of you actually seeing a blue rectangle. That's insane. So our imagination connects to like our visual stimuli in almost the exact same way? Almost the exact same way. Like, and I, I actually say almost when I probably should say the exact same way. I say almost <laughs> because as a scientist, I'm essentially assuming that perhaps the precision of the equipment that we're using to look at the brain isn't precise to discern very tiny details to show the difference, but it looks exactly exactly like you're looking at a blue rectangle. So here's the interesting thing. So back in the day, they did this research called, they looked at this thing called the Perky effect. What's the perky effect? So the perky effect is, let's go back to this idea of blue rectangle, right? You have it on the blackboard, blue rectangle, boom, right in front of you. 
right? Now, the perky effect is if we remove that blue rectangle and we ask you to imagine a blue rectangle and you're, you have it, you're right, you're right here, you're, you're like imagining it. And if we slowly introduce a blue rectangle very faintly, very, very, very faintly in the same field that you're imagining this blue rectangle, we introduce very, very faintly, you can't discern whether you're actually imagining this or whether it's being presented to you. This is called the perky effect. So how does that apply to psychedelics? Well, it does apply to psychedelics. And it's going to come in my paper that's going to be dropped. <laughs> 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 cliffhanger <laughs> so what what's really blowing my mind actually right now that i'm kind of struggling to understand is you you can plug optodes on the back of my head and you can more or less interpret what i'm seeing basically is is that what you're what you're saying or you have to show no, me the no. object first see no, how my no, brain no. responds and no. then when i see it you can match it up yeah no that isn't even a requirement that is not a requirement and um and yes so the answer is yes. And I'm saying that not only can we see what you're seeing when it comes to brain activity, we can see the activity based on the areas of the visual cortex that handle certain things. So let's okay. say, for example, I only show you black and white imagery. Then the sort of brain parts that is activated is different than if I show you color imagery. If I show you imagery that's fast, super fast, you know, going fast, really fast, like towards you, that even shows up differently as well. But if you imagine this actual imagery, if you just imagine it, then it will show up as if you're actually looking at it, which is amazing because bringing psychedelics into this, one of the most tremendous things that a person can ever experience is the idea of closed eye visuals. Essentially, when you're on psychedelics and you close your eyes, and despite having a occluded vision, which you know means that you can't see anything, your visual cortex, which is the back of the brain, is activated in ways that are just wild and it looks it looks in your brain that you're actually seeing something despite having your eyes closed i know there are like different like different people have different levels of ability to imagine things like some people when imagining an apple physically can't do it some people imagine just a 2d apple some people can imagine like a 3d apple in full color like can you see that difference in people so that's a fantastic question and actually what we do is there's a test to establish a person's ability to even imagine. Some people can't really imagine at all. Like they can't do it. And you can actually see this in this test that we give people. Um, but uh, but quite often, a lot of people have the ability to imagine. Some people can imagine at like higher rates than like other people. So it's something that we only look for a certain group of people that have the ability to imagine a certain capacity, basically. Okay, so this is also kind of blowing my mind about something I included in the article that I thought was kind of just like a far-fetched concept, but now I'm realizing is somewhat uh, potential, which is the idea of being able to recreate and revisit psychedelic experiences if we can map out exactly what a person is experiencing in their mind already which is it's wild because it's like you know dmt is a 15 minute experience that you can potentially then burn onto a cd and revisit the rest of your life yeah 
No, and and like, look, what's going to happen is that, like, for example, DMT. I envision a future, and and yeah, I envision a future that is somewhat like what you're like what you're uh, talking about, where you take DMT, you put on an Fnir's headset, which are the optodes that are attached to, you, to your brain, uh, and then it would record with such temporal and spatial precision that it could tell you at what time in the trip this brain activity happened and what you know what um, area of the brain that uh, happened in. I envision that, and then of course a person can take that, and yeah essentially take that brain activity data that's a very sequential beginning and end and I don't know put it in some disc in the back of your head and then you can have your brain activate with those same areas so how far off how far off are we from that to to actually happen so psychedelics it's just a visual experience you know you have thoughts you have emotions there's auditory effects to it so the thing about FNIRS is that we can only detect cortical activities of the brain which is the top of the brain, not the deep part, like the thalamus and the uh, amygdala. So just the top of the brain. But the top of the brain is fantastic because you have the sensory areas. You have the visual cortex, the back of the brain, auditory cortex, motor cortex. So we can we can establish a lot about the trip with just the cortical regions. So theoretically, if you took the FNIRS data and you had some sort of way to put it on a disc and put it in your head, you can only we, we can only look at the cortical areas of the brain. We can't look at what's happening into the thalamus and the amygdala and the signal cord, which is very important areas of the brain that's, that's augmented by psychedelics. Of course, there are ways that which you can estimate what's happening in the thalamus, which is the subcortical region, based on the activity in the cortical region. It's called a, a thalmocortical loop, which is a feedback loop, which is if something happens here, then probably something is happening down here. But that but that's based on a lot of math and everything. But I want to get to the, the idea of, of experiencing an actual trip. So if this were to happen, not only, okay, so we have the actual data, we put it in our heads, and we put it in our whatever chip, boom. Now, how do we activate those parts of the brain? We can see, but how do we activate it? So there's one scientist that I was recommended to talk to, and she is finding ways to activate parts of the brain via light. I'm not sure how close she is in her research, but it's so I'm detecting the activity and she's working on a way to actually instigate activity based on relatively the same technology. It's very, very, very early. It's very, very new tech. It's I think it's only theoretical right now, but you would have to have a way to activate these brain areas also. So for example, you have the actual tape or the CD or whatever, you know, USB, and you have to have something to actually read the USB and that would be activating the areas of the brain. But to get a true psychedelic trip, you would have to have access to these subcortical areas of the brain, the thalamus, the amygdala, to see how those areas are giving people emotional cues, giving people behavioral um, uh, things that that are also happening. So you would. So currently, the tech that we have, we have fMRI, which I guess we could do it with that. But fMRI, it's not really a true. Like you can't move your head. If you move your head, then the whole the uh, data sets all like messed up. So you know, it could be a very awkward psychedelic experience if you can't move your head. So, anyways, 
how far are we? We'll probably have that tech, and I'll probably be behind it. Hopefully. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm going to say it's, two, it's 2000, what, 22 right now? 2023? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're outside of reality. <laughs> yeah. 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 What is time and space? Like, you guys, you, uh, humans still use those terms? Um, <laughs> no, it's, probably, <laughs> it's, it's like, I mean, to be realistic, we're probably going to have that within the next like 12 years. Like probably less than, than that. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, for sure. Based on how tech's going, yeah. And the thing is, is I don't know, man. I hate giving these estimations about things that are happening because really all progress that we're doing when it comes to like psychedelic science and tech, it's gonna be hit with a huge hammer. And the hammer is called climate change. <laughs> yeah, so, that's fair. Like really whatever resources we currently have to do research they're going to be completely placed at the forefront for sort of helping our climate disaster which we're already in we can't really change what we've done we had a chance to change it but we're going to have to sort of adapt to it so that's going to prevent things like being able to experience your french trip because freaking the earth's on fire why. Yeah, it takes priority. Yeah. But with that idea, the idea of like being able to re-experience your trips, does that just apply to like regular memories as well? Like very Black Mirror-esque, but like, would you be able to just capture people's lives and then have people re-experience those based on their brainwaves? Yeah. Memory's so wild because it's so quantum-based memory. And, and how we encode memory is so precise and also not that well understood and it's beyond just seeing brain activity how we encode things is that's going to be i think that could be the final frontier you know encoding memory and the working memory and all these different types of memories and i think we will have the ability to experience psychedelics you know trips from our friends and way sooner than a person's life and what they did when they're eight years old and whatever that that's going to be difficult that, that's a super difficult thing but we have fantastic scientists that are on it okay so i wanted to change gears a little bit because you know something i think that's really cool about you like i've said is that you're you're one of the few people who's studying just for the sake of studying. And you've also been pretty outspoken about the problems in research, especially with regards to funding and, and all that stuff for research like yours. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about, you know, the reason why you can't talk about research you haven't released yet and, and the reasons why it's been kind of difficult for you to get the funding that you're looking for for this really exciting study. Thanks. Yeah. So right now in psychedelics, you know, we're in the psychedelic renaissance. In actuality, the renaissance the, the whole idea of the psychedelic renaissance, it's not really a new idea at all. Matter of fact, uh, there was a German paper that came out in 1997 that actually used that term, 1997. I did not know that. That's really wild. And they were actually talking about the idea of ketamine inspiring a renaissance in psychedelics. So fast forward to 20 years later, ketamine is essentially the first psychedelic to be actually approved for consumption by the FDA, you know, in the form of Spravato via Johnson & Johnson. So does that mean that the psychedelic renaissance is over? Well, of course not. You know, there's still lots of stuff to do, but all of the funding right now is going towards how psychedelics in this renaissance can help with things like therapy, anxiety, PTSD, depression. And that's all very important. I'm not trying to discount that, but it feels like we're like not really looking at why we have this 
Bever to get psychedelics to help us? Like, why do we have all these problems? Like, perhaps, you know, it's systemic and psychedelics. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah. And, and how crazy is that? Like, it's so systemic that the same system that essentially prevented psychedelic research spread misinformation about psychedelics through the D.A.R.E. campaign, just so you know, all this stuff is the same system that is trying to incorporate psychedelics to help with what they've essentially created, which is this sort of weird complex of sort of misinformed dogma of like, you know, BS that's been incorporated. So yeah, why are we focused on all these problems? Well, look, we have a very stressed out world, you know, and we tried religion and that didn't really work. We tried like philosophy, you know, <laughs> that worked for a little bit, then it just sort of went away. We tried politics and that really hasn't gone anywhere. It, it's sort of stagnant. So now we're so desperate in society that we're trying the one thing that society said don't try because we're so desperate in fixing these problems. So that's the reason why a lot of cash is going towards how psychedelics can help with these you know, ideas and these issues. But I think there's a possible second psychedelic renaissance that's on the horizon. Okay. And this renaissance is based purely on perception, purely on our understanding of our external reality. And I mean, people say that I'm sort of the like leader of this idea. I don't know. I mean, look, any person that does LSD and they see things like we we're like right here, you know, like why, like why are we seeing stuff? Like, I don't know. You, you don't know. We don't really know. So I'm the person that's trying to figure out why that is. And if we can understand why entire modalities of sensory perception get altered on psychedelics and perhaps that will help us understand just how we perceive reality in general and i think that's a pretty good pursuit by itself to to understand the process of reality and where's the cash for it where is the money why aren't people vibing with this idea where are all the sort of billionaires that understand this idea you know where where are they no they are trying to build the next pharmaceutical psychedelic company and that and that's some, and that's the reason why and then of course you have this pursuit to even take out the psychedelic from the psychedelic to remove yeah. the subjective experience from the actual psychedelic itself, which is completely horrible. And actually my friend David Yaden said it is probably unethical. And I believe he's onto something. That's kind of the anti-Zeus approach, right? Like you're you're trying to understand the perception and they're trying to get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, I'm, it feels like I'm an I'm like an underdog in humanity's understanding of reality. And, and corporations are just trying to say, look, this whole trip thing, that's just secondary. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's primary. This isn't a bug. Perhaps the trip is the actual feature itself. Yeah, that's that's really wild. I, I remember I, I read a study recently. I'm sure you read it too. The one that compared uh, LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline in their molecular form. And they found that people couldn't tell the difference between the three, even at the end of the trip, which is like, I mean, like the difference between LSD and psilocybin at the end of the trip is something you would think would be very clear considering LSD lasts like four hours longer. But even at the end of the trip, they were unable to tell the difference. And, you know, a lot of it is just our, our subjective experience. And, you know, like if I 
take dry mushrooms, it's going to upset my stomach. And that's going to change the way that my mindset is about it. Even if we're just getting away from like, you know, any kind of idea of like a, a entourage effect within uh, mushrooms, which it is not proven, but like even just getting away from that, like the fear, pure physiological symptoms of doing it. And then also my mindset of what the mushroom represents, my mindset of, of all of that. But I think our mindset, you know, in, in the point that you're making, which is, is really profound, is that it, it extends to every element of our life. I mean, set and setting is everything behind every condition that we have. Like, you know, depression, we try and think of it as like a chemical imbalance, but the chemical imbalance could just as easily be a result of years of an improper set and setting for a lot of people and, and having to deal with, you know, years of letdowns and depression and, and all this other stuff coming as a result of your systemic oppression that you're facing. Like, I, I think one of the things that you said in our interview was uh, there's no pill that's going to cure systemic racism. Like there's no, no pill that's going to cure... <laughs> these deep inset problems that we have in society, but we we try. Uh, I, I know I've seen like a Time Magazine article from like 04 or something like that that had a picture of a Prozac pill with like a camouflage on the other side and it said the military's next secret weapon. And it was like, all right, well, so we're just doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's very good. Yeah, it, I mean, that's the attitude with a lot of this entire field. So I went to psychedelic science in Denver, Colorado this uh, summer. And oh my gosh, the the sheer positivity emanating from everybody was very good. It was very, you know, contagious. It was, it was interesting. It was good. You know, it was, everyone was positive. But I think that that positivity is a little bit ill-placed because that positivity then translates to, oh, well, you don't have to take your pill for diabetes just do shrooms it's gonna help you out or or you know you you know psychedelics can actually help with this and with that and with this and with that and the list goes on and 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 that whenever a single substance has the quote-unquote ability to help with so many things then it's kind of suspect <laughs> In the sense that perhaps the we don't have we have evidence that shows that psychedelics does some fantastic things when it comes to behavior, when it comes to uh, depression, when it comes to even pain thresholds. I mean, we we have actually our um, university we uh, essentially discovered that LSD increases a person's pain threshold, which is I think one of the most tremendous things to even come out of research because to increase the person's pain threshold is beyond just seeing something. You're creating an entire cascade of physiological responses that go towards the pain sensation in your hand. And you can say, oh, well, I, I can withstand that, you know, much more pain. But the thing is, is to assume that psychedelics can help with everything is a little bit naive. And the reason why it's that way is, you know, it's really a sort of reaction to what we've been told about psychedelics for a very long time is how psychedelics can actually hurt with your, you know, behavior, with your emotion, with your relationships, with your productivity. We've been fed all of this BS about psychedelics for a very long time. So in order to combat this like programming that we've all undergone, we're fighting against this with almost an equal amount of, of misinformation. It's a yeah. pendulum and, swing in the opposite direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly what's happening with psychedelics. And of course, guys, look, I mean, we assume that psychedelics will make a person altruistic, but there was a fantastic um, paper that was dropped by my friend Brian Pace, fantastic evolutionary biologist. And he says that, look, don't be surprised if psychedelics fuels 
things like anti-Semitism, things like racism, things like, you know, anti-whatever it, it, it is. Because psychedelics, it also increases a person's capacity to be susceptible to things, especially susceptible to things like mythology. And when it comes to things like white supremacy, all that is really based on mythology that's instituted to people through other things, you know, through um, literature, through, you know, podcasts or whatever. But when you have psychedelics attached to that, that influence is increased. So we have to also assume that, yes, psychedelics has the potential to help with things like creativity, but it also has the ability to sort of thwart, quote unquote, positive aspects of creativity, positive aspects of, of, of uh, social constructs. It, it could hurt that. It could do a lot of things. So yeah, man, it's, it's, it's something that is not all positive and not all negative. It exists in this very gray area, but as do a lot of things in this world. Sort of a multiply, multiplier of things, good or bad. You kind of can feed into the the system it'll multiply in kind of whatever direction you're pushing it mm. yes that that's a really good breakdown yeah it's like a it's sort of a um, enhancer for you know it's it's like a salt and pepper on whatever human condition that you have if you're a, a hateful guy a little bit of salt and pepper it makes it a little bit tastier if, if you're a very altruistic person a little bit of salt and pepper makes that altruism <laughs> a little bit more tastier but it's it's a sort of enhancer or an activator of your own beliefs yeah shout out to uh right-wing psychedelia i think was the name of that paper that you're talking about by brian pace and i think their term for that was uh culturally pluripotent oh wow uh, <laughs> of course brian would say that yeah um, yeah no yeah. i think i think it's very much like it feels like um like weed in the early 2000s it's like it's the same kind of thing where it's like people were starting to wake up that all of the propaganda over the years was a lie and so then it became like oh we can cure cancer and we can you know xyz and it's like you're kind of like start in this whole area was mostly um weed content so i'm sure you came across this viewpoint quite a lot but it was like you know you would get trapped in these conversations where it would just be like i saw a youtube video where xyz <laughs> and, and it's like the same kind of thing feels like it's happening right now i mean i this has just been a, a phenomenal conversation what else would you like for us to know about what you're studying right now and and the importance okay. of figuring the stuff out mm. so yes um so okay Yes, I am a guy researching uh, DMT. And of course, whenever I say DMT, the first thing people say is, well, what about those you know, DMT elves? What is like my take on the DMT elves? And um, yeah, man, I, I got in a little spat with this guy on Twitter a few months ago about this. So the idea of DMT elves, it's, it's an idea that when you take a high enough dose of DMT, you will be whisked away to this thing called DMT hyperspace, in which you will be able to communicate with these beings or entities or elves uh, for a very brief period of time. But that is the idea of the DMT elves. Of course, it was popularized by Terrence McKenna, and people saw these elves after they heard it from Terrence McKenna, or they heard their friend talk about it from Terrence McKenna. So, okay, perhaps we have this idea of suggestibility. If you believe you're going to be talking to elves, because the person who popularized DMT told everybody that they would be talking to elves, then of course you will go into the trip expecting to talk to elves. Or even if you haven't heard of Terrence McKenna, but your friend has, then he will tell you, watch out for the elves. So, okay, perhaps the entire DMT elves stuff 
is a very propagated thing from Terrence McKenna that is sort of going down the psychedelic culture so that if, so that we all see elves. But let's say I'm wrong about that, all right? Let's say I'm wrong in that actually the elves are real. The, the elves are these things. Okay, whatever, not real, but okay. Let's say every person that takes enough of DMT sees entities. Let's say that happens, all right? Now, what does that tell you about DMT? Does it tell you that there are actual entities when you do DMT? No, it actually tells you that despite our vast cultural differences, gender differences, behavioral differences, that fundamentally we're all working with the same hardware in our brain, whether you're like a billionaire or whatever, you know, we're working with the same hardware in our brain. So if you take the same psychedelic, that's chemically the same because it's DMT. It's not like DMT light or DMT with lemon in it. It's DMT. If you take this substance and you put it essentially on the brain, plug it into the brain, then you will have a similar experience because that's how we're wired to have an experience. It really should bring us together in the sense that despite wherever we are geographically, culturally, that if you take this substance, you will have a similar experience. That should tell us a lot about not only DMT, but how the brain is wired and how we perceive things like visual information. I think uh, I really like this. There's so many different theories of these uh, machine elves. I like to, like you've mentioned, like the meme meme theory. I, I like this idea of like, we have this natural tendency of anthropomorphizing everything. And with the DMT, especially experience, it's, so, it's very fractally and there's a lot of mixing of shapes and everything. And I guess the idea is that we can pick out faces or out of chaos, basically. Our brains try to naturally pick out other human faces or animals out of this chaos. What do you think about that as a theory? Gosh, are you sure you haven't been in my lab this past week looking at our research <laughs> no i i that's we're that's actually, actually spies cool. we are looking spies. for your I, research i, I, I figured i figured you were, you were all spies um so yeah no so yes you're right and uh gosh so there's a lot of like official scientific terms for the idea of having random information random visual and then assembling things from this. So actually, I believe that we could actually see the brain activity change from when we have random information to when this random information turns into a face. I believe we could see that activity and we're in, we're actually, I shouldn't say this, but we're looking at that very specific thing that you said in our research, very specifically what you said, how we essentially create animism is what it's, but you get yeah, you can call it whatever. Zooscopy is also a thing. But how we assemble forms from a formless field of visual space. I think the term for it in a lot of different ways of like finding patterns where there are none, I just had to look it up. Apophenia is the word where you just assign a pattern where there is none because it makes you feel more in control of the chaos. Yeah, yes. I mean, if I'm like, if I'm sober and I'm looking at a tree line, I'll probably notice a face or two. But even if I just smoke a little bit of weed, I see faces everywhere, I feel like. So I, I think that that totally tracks as like, you know, you're uh, you're looking for... <laughs> basically when the DMT elves show up. Right. Like you're basically, you're in the South Pole waiting for Santa to show up, basically. Because you, <laughs> because you were told that Santa was going to be there. So you went all the way to the pole. Was it was in North Pole or South Pole. I think it's North Pole. So you like went <laughs> yeah. there expecting Santa to show up, which is how people are doing DMT. They take DMT with the complete expectation that they are going to see a creature or a being or whatever. So yes, this could be a very elaborate form 
of expectancy effect. It could be a very elaborate form of like cultural condition. It could be an elaborate form of of like of a lot of stuff. And and, and actually, I have a study out right now. It's bit.ly forward slash trip BMT if you want to check it out. But we're looking at this idea. We have a question on the questionnaire. I should tell this to you guys, Mosaic. We have the, we have a question on the questionnaire that asks people how familiar are they with Terrence McKenna? That's it. Kind of trying to set up if this almost like if the meme meme theory, I guess, or whatever whatever you want to call it, is kind of already installed in this person's mind. If they already have these expectations that they're going to see DMT entities, is that kind of the idea? Well. Wouldn't it be interesting if the higher a person scores on if they have heard of Terrence McKenna? Of course, there's like yes, no, slightly, uh, yes, slightly, you know, and of course, like strongly, yes, you know. How interesting would it be if people that scored high in their understanding of Terrence McKenna also scored high? in their appearances of entities and elves like wouldn't that be interesting That'd certainly be would yeah yeah this kind of reminds me too of like uh like ghosts you know if you go to a haunted house or not a haunted house but like a, a place that's haunted you're way more likely to see some kind of paranormal activity and it's like was the actual paranormal activity there or were you going there expecting to see a ghost and just knowing that it's haunted significantly increases the, the chances of sighting something <laughs> look yes and first off gosh i've watched so many of those ghost shows it's such a waste of time it's like they spin the entire episode just being afraid of like nothing and they come back with like the worst data like a little spot on their camera but, so you should give yes. them dmt i think is the answer should, yeah give them DMT. now you'll see what was happening yeah haunted house is the least of your concerns whenever you're on dmt <laughs> but, but, but um, I, I do want to get back to what you uh brought up is that yeah if you go to a haunted house and you're more susceptible to see ghosts but there was a study that happened about a few years ago where they were looking at the effect of placebo of course placebo is a non-active substance that a person takes along with an active substance to show if there's any differences between placebo and, and that so what about this research which is fantastic so there was a study that they looked at people that had back pain or some type of pain i think it was a lumbar back pain and they said look okay you're in this research okay look we're going to give you this pill and this pill is a placebo pill this pill does not work. It does not work. This is a placebo pill. This does not work. We're just going to give this to you. We're not going to give you any other medication. Just a placebo pill that does not work. Here, take it. Now you know this is a placebo pill. Just take it anyway. Take it for three and a half weeks, four, four weeks, and then come back to us, and then we'll you know do your whole physical metric and everything. So they did this. These people, they did this. They came back and they found that the people that took placebo, while understanding it was placebo, reported lesser back pain. Wow. Was it a similar, yeah. like, I think with placebo, you expect about like a 30%. Was it similar or? It, yeah, it was, it was very uh, similar. It, it was very, it was significantly attributed to the placebo effect. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty important with like psychedelics because you know if you have a placebo when you or not when you take psychedelics. So this research kind of suggests that that almost doesn't matter if you know if it's if it's the real thing or not. Yeah. So yeah. And and what so what would what would be working? Like why would this happen? Is it just the sort of some some type of like habituation of taking a pill that your body automatically like, you know, comes up and it's like, okay, let's increase whatever. We we don't know. Is it based on you know, some type of weird long-term initiation or is it based on like a ritual of taking it? We, we don't, we don't understand why 
made that happened and uh and and, and why that is placebos so well but i want to get back to what you said about how yeah how do you placebo how do you even incorporate placebo when it, whenever you do like a you know research when it comes to actual psychedelic i mean break pretty quickly you're either tripping or you're not tripping like you know it's pretty pr pretty obvious but what you could do although this may not be ethically sound but it solves the idea of placebo is that you could say okay let's say for this we're looking at the effects of shrooms on you know behavior right but we need a placebo okay shrooms active component placebo is like not active component. But we could also have like lsd which is not shrooms but you have a very active thing that happens so you could have like you know mdma which is a placebo in the sense that it's not shrooms you, you can't identify it so perhaps you can give placebo with giving people different types of psychedelics yeah maybe like something with a different mechanism like ketamine or something different right ketamine yeah like uh, uh you know Sabi de norm, maybe kappa opioid receptors. I do know that back in the 60s and the 70s, they had this very, it's, it's called 6-FDET, which they gave to people. Uh, I could be, I'm pretty sure it's 6-FDET. I did a video on it, but it was a, it was a sort of active placebo that essentially had the physiological effects of psychedelics without the actual psychedelic effect. But I don't know. I don't trust that research because if you look deeper into it, like this psychedelic, people were still sort of tripping on the psychedelic. So it wasn't really a, it wasn't a non-active psychedelic. It was still, it was like a lessened, I don't know. But yeah. I don't so, know if so I yeah. trust any research from the 60s to be entirely honest. Man. <laughs> I mean, if you want to go back to the 50s, like 50s research was intense. Like if anyone is a fan of cats, then don't look at research in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, I've come across quite a few cat studies, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, this, this has been this has been phenomenal. Yeah. I just want to ask, where can people find the work that you're doing? Where can they find you online now that social media is dying in its many different ways? <laughs> um, where can they find your work and follow up with you? Yeah, what so are your 20 social media handles? Yeah, well, so I'm going to tell you guys to go to a single site, and it is linktree.com forward slash tapato, T-I-P as in Paul, A. D, oh, that's my last name, Tapado, Zeus Tapado. Linktree.com forward slash Zeus Tapado. You can see all of my research, my current studies, what I've written, the videos I've done, even whatever social platform is hot right now, whether it's Threads or X or TikTok or whatever. It's all there. It's all there. So you can see it all. It, it's it's all there. Uh, Linktree.com forward slash Tapado. Awesome. And, and when can we look? You said... Uh late September, we're hoping for yeah, your, so, your published um, paper. Yeah, about late September. Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, it should be up. If it's not, then wait a couple of weeks. So whenever this comes out, wait a couple of weeks. Wait a few weeks and then it'll <laughs> it'll drop, you know? Just uh, keep refreshing. Just keep pushing refresh. Keep pushing refresh. Of course, guys, if you follow, if you, if you want to follow me on X, it's crazy to say, follow me on X at, is it x.com forward slash Tapato? That's kind of cool. I think, right, it's, I, think Twitter, I think it's still Twitter.com. Okay, I don't think that. Twitter.com forward slash Tapato. You can 
yeah it's so ridiculous i don't know like just stick with the cars dude <laughs> yeah um find me x uh instagram.com forward slash zeus tapato occasionally i put out um videos of things that i've done in the past when it comes to working for snoop dogg mary jane doing lsd at like drag con doing shrooms at e3 all that stuff's on there as well um all of my historically wild stuff that i've done uh, I yeah, need a guys, podcast just to talk about that stuff. <laughs> just yeah, really, right oh at the end. <laughs> yeah, doing LSD at the RuPaul DragCon. That was wow. I mean, the thing was, it, it, it was just it. It was so overwhelming because the costumes were so visually like reflective, and it and and it 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 felt like I was inside of like an intentionally trippy experience because everyone had on just just. I'm talking about like reflective, the reflections that that I were that I was seeing was so intense. It was so intense. It was oh my gosh. So yeah, um, LSD. Yeah, we're again? gonna we're gonna have you back to talk about that. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, real quick, are you? It was this intense in a good way or in a bad way? Because I could see that going either way. <laughs> no, it was it, it was great. It was just there was one period you could see it in the video where like I just had to stop and I and I just had the microphone. Of course, there was an entire film crew filming me and I'm tripping on like two hits of LSD and I'm, I'm trying to just sort of understand this whole thing and, and I say look if you think you can do this then you try to do it and I just laugh because I'm like this is insane what am I doing but it, it I mean it was positive it was great I had great conversations it was just the the costumes were so it was such a primal um a primal in the sense of it was like somebody holding a disco ball right into your face as you're tripping on LSD like all like all the time I was like, it was so elementarily tripping all the time with colors and reflections and light. Uh, yeah. Uh, That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Zeus, thank you so much. Uh, have a great birthday. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy us birthday. Fuck. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Uh, I, I wish my laptop, the worst thing that happened to my birthday was my laptop broke. Uh, but I mean, I am in Paris, so there's lots of stuff to do in Paris. Yeah, yeah I'm sure you, you'll get by. You'll get by. Yeah, I'll, I'll get by. Anyways, guys, thank you for having me on. Fantastic questions. I had a great time. Uh, I can be on for, you know, I, I can do this again. And this is great. The same people. Please keep it the same people. This is great. I, I love the interaction. I love the questions. Very educated questions. Very impressed with everybody. I'm very impressed. You guys are thank doing you. fantastic. Thank you. Thanks uh, so much. Can't wait to re read your upcoming work. And this definitely, I've got a lot of stuff to chew on from this conversation. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. Thanks so much, Juice. Sure. Juice. Thank you so much, Juice. This juice is awesome. <laughs> thank you, Juice. <laughs> much love, everybody. Much love, man. Take care. Have a good birthday. Thank you. That was crazy. That was so good. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Tripsitter Podcast. Don't forget to check out our interview with Zeus available on our Substack. Speaking of which, Tripsitter depends on the support of our viewers. If you like our work and would like to help keep it going, head over to tripsitter.substack.com where you can subscribe to our premium newsletter and receive even more content. Want to show your support without a monetary requirement? Like and share this podcast and give us a rating. It really does help boost our listenership and would mean a lot to us. Or you can sign up for our free newsletter, which goes out twice a week as well. Finally, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, or wherever else you get your social media engagement. Remember, no drug is inherently good or bad. They're just chemicals, natural or unnatural, that exist in the world. It's our relationship with them and how we interact with them that makes the difference. Have a safe trip.